Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For, the, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray yet again. Father in heaven, please take these common passages and engrave them in our souls with illumination and understanding that you would use them for the sanctification of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't say it out loud. I I say that because somebody's going to eventually one of these times and it potentially could be embarrassing, but think about your favorite food. Like that food that like periodically you wake up and you're like, man, I really want that. And I'm not, I'm not talking generically like pizza. Any day I could wake up at pretty much any day and go, I think I want pizza today. In fact, that's most days. But think about that one specific food that like you really, really love, but you maybe don't get that often. For me, Joella's hot chicken. Yeah, you have no idea what that is because it's a restaurant that only exists in Louisville. It's a special type of fried chicken that is both spicy and hot and delicious, and it is amazing. But think about your favorite food, or my favorite food for that matter, and think about what it's like to try to actually explain what makes that food so special to someone else. Have you ever actually tried that? I mean, really and truly, most of the time when you do it, you go, well, it's like this thing that you know 
only it's better in these ways. I mean, you think of like my, my favorite kind of fried chicken. I would say, well, it's like Chick-fil-A, except the breading is better and the chicken is better and it's spicy, but in the way that you like and not the way you don't. Now, again, that's not really a particularly helpful description, but it's a starting point. Because realistically, what's the best way for me to describe Joella's hot chicken for you? It's to serve it to you. Because once you had it, you will understand that I'm not crazy because Joella's hot chicken is the best hot chicken ever. <laughs> Likewise, for whatever food your favorite is, it's the same kind of thing. You can try to describe it to me, but realistically, all you end up with is kind of big picture categories that can only be fully understood from the other side. Say yours is a special type of sushi. I, I have no idea. One of those things that you can kind of describe, well, it's like regular sushi, except these are the ways that it's better. But honestly, you won't understand that until you've eaten this type of sushi. Now back up a step. Try to do that same process, let's say to someone from Southeast Asia or Central Africa, or Siberia, who's never had the same types of foods we have. And think about how unbelievably difficult that description process is. I mean, hot chicken. Why would you eat that? What is hot chicken? I mean, Jesus here in Mark is answering a kind of similar type of question, only a bigger and even more difficult one. He's answering, what is the church, or what is the kingdom of God? to people who aren't really thinking about it correctly. And think about how hard that is. Again, y'all may not have ever had this kind of question. Uh, I get this question more often than not, but what is church? Do you know how hard it is to answer that question? It's the people of God gathered together. I mean, it's, it's the time where we get together to meet with God in the Sunday morning and Sunday evening. But does that describe all that Christ ridges? I mean, not even close, right? It's an unbelievably difficult task. So what you end up with oftentimes are kind of big picture categories that you can't fully understand until you're on the other side. Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34 is that uh, very similar type of experience where Jesus is using parables to explain his kingdom, to explain, we'll, we'll call it lovingly, the church. But in such a way... It puts the big picture categories, but you don't fully understand it until you're on the other side. He starts out in verse 20. These are hard because, again, we we know them all the time. Uh, We've heard them preach a hundred times, sometimes uh, wonderfully incorrectly. Uh, But we know all of the passage, maybe save one. 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand for nothing is hidden. All right, so we got that first part. We know that one. That's one of those, oh yeah, I know this dude. I know the little light song. I know that you put it under a bushel. I'm very familiar with the concept. I know the illustration. I have no idea what it means, but I know the illustration. Or I know that it means I'm supposed to share the gospel. And that usually is true for most points in the scriptures, but um, not necessarily the key here. Jesus is giving them an object lesson that is expressing part of the, the nature of what the church is or the kingdom of God is. 
The kingdom of God is inherently designed to be visible. It's inherently designed to be visible. That's the whole purpose of it. Its very essence is like a lamp. And again, think about lamps then. They're not like the lamps today, right? It's a little clay pot with a little spout on the front that you had a piece of cloth sticking out of, and you poured oil in the other part, and then you lit it on fire. We would call it something very similar to a clay Molotov cocktail. You forgot how to learn, learn how to make those when you were a kid. You know, take the glass jar with the wick sticking out and gasoline on the inside, and you light the wick. It's the same kind of concept. They just use oil. It burns just slowly enough not to catch your house on fire, but just quickly enough to light it up in the process. So the idea of taking said lamp and putting it under a basket is not only a like goofy idea because it would make everything go dark, it's a fatal idea because it would burn it all down. In fact, actually, the one place you most certainly don't want a lamp to be is under a bed. The most flammable thing in your house. Let's place it on top of a flame. The clarification comes, though, in verse 22, because Jesus is explaining to them, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And he's saying, look, the reality of the matter is right now, at the time he's talking, the kingdom of God is secret and hidden. They don't understand yet what's taking place. They don't understand exactly yet what the kingdom of God is going to be like. You remember this, the disciples get this wrong all the time, right? Jesus, when are you going to take us into your kingdom? When are you going to kill all the Romans? Because they're really annoying. Like, I'm ready for you to just lop off all their heads. Let's just, here, here snap your fingers. Have your angels come and do it and kill them all. He's like, no, 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 you're missing the point. The kingdom of God had not yet come to fruition at the time in which he's speaking. It's cross hasn't happened, resurrection hasn't happened, ascension hasn't happened. The kingdom of God is in process of arriving at this point. And when Jesus is talking, in fact, actually, it's still early enough in his ministry uh, that he's still in the kind of secretive phase of his ministry. He's not telling everybody, go out and tell them who I am. This is still the But it's intriguing. He notes, look, nothing is hidden except for the purpose of being shown. Why is the kingdom of God hidden for a season? Well, it's hidden for a season so that it will be shown later. Why is something made secret? Well, it's made secret so that it will come to light later. The kingdom of God is designed in its very essence to begin this way, but not stay that way. And you think, well, that's a neat point. Thank you, Michael. That's wonderfully helpful. I have all of my theology right now. Everything in the Bible now makes sense. Actually, no, it is, I mean, I make fun of myself, but it's a really important point to understand when we think about our day-to-day lives. Because we live in the in-between of those two points. We live in the in-between of it being secret and it becoming obvious. We live in the in-between when it is hidden and when it is made fully manifest. And so much of the difficulty that we experience in the church today is because of the tension of those two in-betweens. 
Why do we have church discipline? Because we live in between. The kingdom of God is not yet made fully manifest where I get to see your hearts on display and you get to see mine. Now, there'll be a day when that happens. I hope it's today. It'd be great if it's about 10 minutes. I we have to finish the sermon. That would be wonderful. <laughs> but as of yet, it hasn't happened, and so you don't know. We live in the in-between. We have to have church discipline because as we are now, we still don't see everything clearly. Why do we have denominations? Because we live in the in-between. Why do we have some denominations that we would consider brother or sister denominations and we have some that we would consider synagogues of Satan? Why? Because we live in the in-between. But the interesting thing is, is that it will not stay that way forever. The in-between only lasts for a time and everything is made clear in the end. Think about just for a moment the way that this changes the ethics, the, the behavior of God's children. To know that in the end, the nature of God's kingdom is for everything to be seen. You're going to live a little differently, aren't you? To know that part of what we are called to is a transparent kingdom, a visible kingdom, a holy kingdom. It's changing, it's transforming, it's becoming seen. Well, okay, that's uh, kind of first category one. It's moving from invisible to visible. Again, supremely important, but one of those things that you maybe don't think about quite as often. Verses 24 and 25 introduce another category. This one he gives a bit more of a stern warning to. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. It's not just a, hey, listen. This is a be forewarned. This is supremely important. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still will more be added to you. For the one who has more will be given from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. What on earth does that mean? Again, I'm familiar with that passage. I'm familiar with that idea. What on earth does that mean? Well, it's actually an application of the previous point. If the previous point is true that the church is moving from this hidden secretive, God, the kingdom of God is moving from this hidden secretive state into a fully transparent, manifest, obvious state... then the way that you behave in the meantime is actually going to matter because it's eventually going to be seen by everyone. In fact, what Jesus is striking at here is this uh, response to the Word. Your actions matter. When you interact with the Word of God, it matters. It makes a difference. Think about what happens at the second coming, at the end of time. If you have just spent any effort understanding the Word of God and you are God's child, what happens to your understanding of the Word of God at either death or the second coming? It increases immensely. 
to think about how my understanding of the scriptures will change when my flesh passes away, my lingering corruption of sin passes away. All those things that I've been blinded to, maybe because my pride, or maybe because of sensuality, or maybe because of things I just don't feel like engaging, or they hurt too much, or subconsciously I just don't even understand. All those hindrances are removed. And while I have been seeking to understand God's Word, it is then heaped upon me even more. But 25 is the scary one. For the one who has the Word of God, God's presence, this reality, more will be given. Again, it's the nature of the kingdom of God that if you have the kingdom, when it comes, you get more of it. But to the one who doesn't have it, who does not have God's word in their heart, who does not have the forgiveness that Christ offers, that does not understand the gospel, that does not know the Lord God, even what he does have will be taken away. To think about, this nation is a good example Increasingly, we're finding more and more people who have never heard anything about the Bible, but it used to be just a handful of decades ago, it was hard to find somebody, particularly in the South, that knew nothing about the Bible. Now, I remember, I'm not joking when I say, I remember the first person I ever talked to who had grown up in the Bible Belt and had never heard about Jesus. I remember the first person I met that did that. It was amazing. It was like 15 years ago. I was like, this is unbelievable. I didn't know you people existed. But what Jesus is referring to here is those people that already have, in some sense, some of the blessings associated from being just in the proximity of the kingdom of God. If they do not know the Lord upon death or the second coming, even those blessings are taken away. To think about, you know, again, even unbelievers, how much wisdom they can gain from the Proverbs. Proximity of God's blessings, but instead of it being heaped upon blessing upon blessing, they've rejected the Lord, and instead what they do have is taken away. It's removed from them. Actions matter. Continues. Verses 26 through 29, the one that we probably know the least well out of all of these. It's unique to Mark. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. And the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And here you get to see... Again, an application of the first principle. If the kingdom of God is migrating from this hidden, invisible thing into a fully manifest, fully obvious reality, the mysterious nature of that growth means you cannot quantify it until the end. Verses 
Say that again, the mysterious nature of its growth means you cannot quantify it until the end. Look at how Jesus explains this. The kingdom of God is a parable. It's as if a man should go out and scatter seed. That's the right thing. A farmer, this is what we do. Now, does he fully understand how those plants are going to grow? No. I mean, he understands well, she understands the things that are necessary for those plants to grow, but do you understand the exact thing as to what makes them grow? No, I mean, even biologists today can, I mean, they can take guesses at which seeds will germinate and which ones won't, but they can't make them happen. So instead, what does he do? He sleeps and gets up and works the way that he's supposed to work. And one day he goes out in the field and guess what? Ooh, there's little green things and it's exciting. And there's little green things and there's little green things. And then one day he goes out there and the little green things have leaves. Well, that's amazing. And then one day he goes out there and the little green things don't just have leaves, but they actually have fruit, grain. Don't know exactly when that happened along the way. When exactly they turned from just leafy plants to wheat, but they did, and we've got fruit. I love how in verse 27, and he knows not how. Again, highlighting this mysterious nature of God's kingdom. That it's not the ministers, the elders, the deacons, the lay people. It's not us driving the ship, so to speak. It's not us. We're not the ones that are in charge that are like, you know, if I preach this perfect type of sermon, man, people are going to get saved. If we do this X, Y, Z ministry, then man, it's going to... No. (laughs) He knows not exactly how the growth takes place. What he does know is that when the time is right, that's when the harvest is brought in. So his task is not to be in charge of the harvest, so to speak. It's to be faithful along the way. The mysterious nature means that it's not easy to quantify the kingdom of God until the end. This is such a refreshing paragraph in contrast to all of the books I have to read on how to preach, how to pastor, and how to grow a church. Because so much of what the American church is trying to do is to reduce growth to a manageable algorithm. If I add A plus B plus C, what comes out is the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you just be faithful. God is the one who is in charge of his kingdom. It's not even a process that we may fully understand. Be faithful. God will provide the harvest. Finally, again, we get to one of the more common ones, a passage that we know and probably know by heart, know certainly the concept of. What can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which sown on the ground. It's the tiniest of little seeds, but it grows up and it's massive. Okay, maybe translate that here to uh, crepe myrtle. Crepe myrtle seed would probably be a good one. Have you seen what crepe myrtle seeds look like? 
they're like tiny. I mean, they're, they're like the little circles, the little balls, but they fall apart and they look like orange slices that are about maybe uh, a little bit bigger than like if you clipped your fingernail, if you hadn't, you know, cut your fingernails for a couple of weeks and rather large, they're really fairly small. Have you ever seen what a crepe myrtle can turn into over like a lifetime? When we went to General Assembly in Disney, I saw crepe myrtles I've never seen before in my entire life. The trunks of the crepe myrtles at Disney are this big around. They are approximately four stories tall. And they actually grow up into each other. And as I was looking, I'm thinking, I probably could have climbed up all the way across and down the other side without falling. They line the roads. Massive things. Okay, mustard bush doesn't really translate well to me. Cray Myrtle does. Think about these. They get huge. I mean, you think about if you tend to them well and give them enough time, they're as big as oak trees almost. I mean, they're huge, huge plants. And then the second part that Jesus highlights, and not only does it grow up, and this is where the crepe myrtle kind of breaks down. (laughs) Because they grow up to be huge and useful. And that's where the crepe myrtle kind of falls apart. Because they grow up to be huge, and they look like sticks most of the year. The kingdom of God is like this mustard seed, which is small, it gets big, and then everything benefits through it. And a good way to say this is if he's describing it, it's an issue of inevitable blessing. The kingdom of God, by definition, is inevitable blessing, meaning it it can't stop. (laughs) It can't be foiled. It can't be ultimately hindered. It can't be prevented. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. And I think it's intriguing that the illustration that Jesus uses is that it's going to happen and it's going to be delightful. It becomes larger than all the garden plants, verse 32, puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. When it's a bajillion degrees outside, I'm fairly certain shade is something substantially important. Plus providing uh, underbrush and such for animals to live in so that the land is blessed. You think about it again, it's really hard to kind of describe what the church is. Jesus here gives us kind of five categories Right? It's progressing from invisible to visible. It, in a way that we don't fully understand, accounts for the actions of the people of God. <laughs> the mysterious nature of that growth means that you, you can't fully quantify it until the end. You can't get metrics on it. You can't get a re- membership even is hard. Again, that's why we have excommunication, because sometimes you just get it wrong. It is an inevitable blessing. Those are your four. The last one here is, interestingly, even as it, the way he goes to explain it. Verse 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Idea being, he's speaking to the crowds, and how well are they able to hear it? Not very. 
And so he uses extremely simple object lessons that even they don't understand a lot of times. He didn't speak to them without using a parable, but to his disciples, he explained everything. It's intriguing how even here God is, and Jesus is highlighting this distinction between those that are in and those that are out. They get totally different experiences of the same thing. And again, you you know this experience where those that, well, yeah, church is just a place of rules where they tell me what I can't do. Yeah, that's, that's a terrible misread. Not saying I can't see how you got there. It's a terrible misread. But it's something that you can only understand from the inside. Okay, what do we do with that? I don't think this is a fairly accurate explanation of the passage. What do we do with a passage like this? Again, that we know a hundred times over and we've interacted with. How do we apply this? How do we live differently? Well, a number of ways. One of which is to be quick to invite into our midst. I know I talk about this with great frequency, but one of the greatest and best assets in your evangelistic efforts are the people that sit in these chairs. I know inviting a person to church is, a not, is not a one-to-one um, equality with evangelism. Right? If, if, we can't simply reduce evangelism and dividing people to church, but please start with that. Why? Because uh, this body is designed to be part of that so that it's felt as it's heard. So that as they hear the Word of God, they get to see the Word of God and feel the Word of God and talk to people who understand the Word of God so that it baffles them from that inside-outside distinction. So that as they come in, they go, they have something I don't. I'm not sure what that is yet. Might not even make any sense to me yet, but I know they have something I don't. Secondly, uh, please, please, please do not be ashamed about that distinction. The distinction between those inside and those outside. That is actually one of the byproducts that we've inherited over the battles of liberalism in the last 125 years or so uh, is an uncomfortability or an unwillingness to draw distinctions between those that are inside the church and those that are outside the church. To draw distinctions between those that are part and parcel of this and those that are not. A number of years ago, uh, a famous Baptist pastor in Washington, D.C. began a ministry kind of highlighting the various kind of attributes of the church and kind of trying to do this and revitalize part of the, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and stuff. And it was interesting, one of the marks that he talked about was church membership because it highlights the distinction between those inside and those out. And people lost their minds. How dare you say that they're outside? Well, I mean, Jesus does, so I'm comfortable saying Jesus says it. I think I'm okay with saying that too. But to help us understand that, because without that understanding, that distinction, there's no motivation for evangelism. If everybody gets the the good ending, so to speak, I don't have any motivation to help change that, to tell them that, to plead with them. To offer them a better way to live, forgiveness of sins, to know the Lord. But then lastly, is again to be reminded 
That the kingdom of God is in the process of becoming from you know, hidden and secret to fully visible. But because of that, our task, first and foremost, is to be faithful to the calling that is presented before us. It's not to be the biggest, greatest church, if that's what God calls us to, that's wonderful. To be the smallest, lowliest church, if that's what he calls us to, it's wonderful. Our calling is toward faithfulness. Not to try to kind of outthink God's kingdom. To think that, oh, I mean, I know Jesus is smart and all, but maybe I might be a little bit smarter in how I operate the church. What's our target? Our target is faithfulness. As God brings about his kingdom in a way that we don't fully understand all of the details to yet. But you know what? When it's fully time for the harvest and that second coming happens, it'll all be clear then. And I don't have to worry about it. If I'm laboring God's mercy to be faithful along the way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for common passages and uncommon ones, easy ones and difficult ones. We do pray that you would give us understanding. Understanding of your kingdom. Give us patience with its developing nature. Give us hope in that final victory. But, oh God, may we be faithful along the way. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.